I'm Avery Smith, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. last episode. I promised you all an episode on interfaith stuff for the end of October. And then my mental health was like, (laughs) good luck with that and did a truly impressive dive straight into a pit of depression and despair. You know how it is. So I didn't get the research done that I had planned to do for that episode. Therefore, I'll table that for November and offer you something else. Something about the queerness of Halloween instead. I hope y'all are cool with that. And also that if you are likewise feeling buffeted by waves of depression or of doom and gloom, I hope that you are surrounded by support and given time to process and proceed. This is a hard time of year for so many of us, as the weather turns cold and particularly this year of pandemic, and in the U.S. at least, a presidential election. So be kind to yourself, and be kind to others, if you can. And if you're into Halloween, I hope you have a wonderful, spooky one. My wife and I are going to celebrate by making good food and watching scary movies, and I'm also celebrating by creating this episode because it is the delightful queerness and religious syncretism of Halloween that most makes me love it. To begin with, Halloween is a day that has undergone various transitions and has traveled across time and space and religious experiences, but at its heart, it has long been about liminal spaces. The boundary between summer and winter, the lengthening of the night, the boundary between the spiritual and the secular. It has long been a time for subversion, of breaking binaries between spiritual and physical worlds, seen and unseen things, the dangerous and the sacred. It's a perfect time for those of us who don't fit into gender norms, where we can live into our holy truths. Let's start with an excerpt from Jewish, Marxist, transgender, and lesbian activist Leslie Feinberg. Z is the one who first taught me that Halloween is a queer thing. In her book from the 1990s, Transgender Warriors, Feinberg talks about how butches and queens, gender non-conforming and trans folk of the United States in the 80s and 90s, were constantly harassed and abused by police officers for cross-dressing. It was only on Halloween, Feinberg eventually realized, that Z didn't have to worry about harassment from the police. Feinberg writes, My greatest terror was always when the police raided the bars, because they had the law on their side. They were the law. It wasn't just the tie I was wearing, or the suit coat that made me vulnerable to arrest. I broke the law every time I dressed in fly front pants, or wore jockey shorts or t-shirts. 
the law dictated that I had to wear at least three pieces of women's clothing. My drag queen sisters had to wear three pieces of men's clothing. But the old butchers told me there was one night of the year that the cops never arrested us. Halloween. At the time, I wondered why I was exempt from penalties for cross-dressing on that one night. And I grappled with the other questions. Why was I subject to legal harassment and arrest at all? Why was I being punished for the way I walked or dressed or who I loved? Who wrote the laws used to harass us and why? Who gave the green light to the cops to enforce them? Who decided what was normal in the first place? End quote. Feinberg's question about why Halloween was the one day of the year the police would leave here and hear people alone is the question we're delving into today. And it has its roots in the Celtic festival of Samhain, from which Halloween eventually arose. And by the way, if you're listening to this, that name Samhain is spelled S-A-M-H-E-I-N. So it's spelled a little differently than you might expect for the pronunciation. Another important lesbian scholar, Judy Gron, writes about this Celtic holy day in her book from the 1980s, Another Mother Tongue, Gay Words, Gay Worlds. And she explains how Samhain eventually brought about Halloween, which Gron names the Great Gay Holiday. Here's what she says. Halloween, All Spirits' Eve, is one of the four holy days celebrated apparently from Paleolithic times by the tribal fairy people and by the Celts who succeeded them and absorbed much of their culture. The Celtic Halloween was originally called Samhain, meaning Somerset, and was the most important of their holidays. It is the time when the new year begins, and therefore the time when two different worlds come together. The Celtic year does not fit together very neatly at the ends, a Celtic specialist, Daniel Melia, explains, and a person can slip at that dangerous time from one world to another. The other world is the one where the spirits live, not thought of as either a heaven or a hell, just another kind of world. Its exact location for the Celts was underground, especially in the vicinity of large burial mounds left by Stone Age fairy people. Spirits wandered out of their usual world on Halloween and walked among mortals, doing extraordinary, trick-or-treat, things. They could be placated by a jack-o'-lantern imitation of themselves and by gifts. Just as the spirits slip into the mortal world on the ill-fitting evening, so a mortal might easily be swallowed into the spirit world if precaution is not taken. So impersonating a spirit is the only safe way to travel outdoors on Halloween. And who could best imitate spirits than the gay people whose traditional priestly shamanic role required just such intercourse with the spirit world? The qualities of impersonation and the dangerous business of crossing over from one world to another help explain why Halloween is the most significant gay holiday.
Elaborate drag balls, often accompanied by costume parades and attendance by stars and political figures, large parties, processions, limousines, and mass public turnouts in gay ghetto areas on Halloween mark the night of nights for the gay community. End quote. Before we follow that thread of Halloween further, its rise to popularity in 20th century U.S. at the hands of the queer community, let's return to Ireland for its transition from the Celtic Samhain into All Hallows' Eve, reluctantly permitted by church powers. When Christians first came to Ireland, way back in the 400s CE, they employed a somewhat syncretic approach to Christianizing the region. The ugly, truths, the ugly truth that Christians like myself need to acknowledge is that ever since it joined forces with empire, becoming the official religion of Rome in 380 CE, the Christian faith has been corrupted by its need to maintain and expand its power and wealth. Too often, in its desire to dominate, the church has plowed over all other religions, rituals, and beliefs, and punished those who practice them. Still, there have been times that the church recognized that it could not successfully eradicate certain practices or beliefs and opted to co-opt them instead. Thus it was in Ireland, the power-hungry church found that it could not stomp out Samhain, so they rebranded it instead. In the 5th century, Pope Boniface moved Samhain to May and declared it a day to celebrate all saints and martyrs. Moving it didn't work out, because while the common folk accepted the new May Feast Day, they didn't see it as identical to Samhain, which they continued to celebrate on October 31st, as they always had. So then in the 9th century, Pope Gregory said, Fine, fine, you can celebrate on October 31st, but we're gonna call it All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween, because hallow means holy, aka it's about the saints, not your Celtic spirits, not subversion of the status quo, but saints. And so the Celtic Samhain merged into the Christian Halloween, mixing the two religions' beliefs about spirits and ancestors and darkness in a way that the Catholic Church could tolerate. And from my queer perspective, I think there's something really subversive about syncretism of this kind. When the powerful institution of the church tried to put a stop to the sacred celebration of the spirit world and the harvest, they failed. Because their power may have been far-reaching, but it wasn't powerful enough to force every little village to stop seeing something holy in the changing of the seasons, in the lengthening of the night, in the boundaries between worlds. The church's power was, and very often remains, a violent and dominating one, a patriarchal one. The common people's power, meanwhile, was one of resilience and reverent recognition of how divinity pervades the created world. I turn again to Leslie Feinberg for more on how European peasants across the centuries fought to preserve their long-held practices and beliefs against the conjoined powers of feudalism and church. In Transgender Warriors, Feinberg discusses how the matrilineal communities that came before either the rise of class and capital or of Christian colonization had plenty of space for gender diversity. 
cross-gendered expression, Z writes, whether male or female, was part of virtually all peasant festivals, including Halloween. After Celtic society transformed from matrilineal to patriarchal, the ruling classes bowed to patriarchal gods, while the laboring class maintained its beliefs in the ancient, nature-based goddess religion. End quote. As discussed, church leaders would move between accepting such behavior so long as they could rebrand it in a Christian way and waging war against it. For instance, Feinberg writes, the Holy Inquisition, begun in 1233, and the witch trials were weapons of terror and mass murder that took a staggering toll in human life from Ireland to Poland. Twenty years after Joan of Arc's execution, in 1451, the Inquisition was officially authorized to battle witchcraft as a major crime. Many peasant women, accused of being witches, were tortured and killed. These included women who followed the older, rural-based religions, lived independently, held small amounts of land, or passed down folk medical knowledge, such as midwives who shared their knowledge of birth control and abortion. Significantly, witches were accused of having the power to change sex. Because of the feudal landlord's economic interest in strengthening patriarchal inheritance and rule, they increasingly partitioned the sexes in the name of God. This drive to differentiate man from woman fueled a frenzied campaign against intersexuality, trans people, women charged with lesbianism, gay men, Muslims, Jews, herbalists, healers, anyone who challenged feudal rule was considered a threat and faced extermination. The inquisitors came armed with the Bible as well as with swords and instruments of torture to put down peasant uprisings. But all the might of the feudal landowners didn't crush the resistance of the peasants once and for all. They continually rose up against the rule of powerful landlords and their feudal theology. End quote. Feinberg goes on to denote such rebellions, which often were led by gender variant persons from the abbeys of misrule in medieval France, Italy, England, Scotland, and more, to Rebecca and her daughters in 19th century Wales. To return us to Celtic culture and Halloween's roots, here's another passage from Feinberg. Cross-dressing is a pattern in rebellions in far-flung countries. And more importantly, this tradition appears to have ancient roots. For instance, references to fairies crop up in a number of accounts of peasant rebellions continents apart. The Catholic Church had waged systemic war against belief in fairies, which it linked to paganism, a holdover from matrilineal communal beliefs. Feinberg details more of the Irish and Welsh rebellions against landowners and English imperialism, who often claimed to be fairies or dressed as women, and then says, I was excited to find these detailed accounts of 19th century guerrilla warfare by cross-dressed farmers and agricultural workers in Ireland and Wales. Once I feared examining history, terrified that I might find that trans people have always been hated. 
Instead, I have discovered that transphobic bigotry is a relatively recent historical development that had to be forced on human beings for several thousand years before it took hold. Buried in the history of the Middle Ages and right up to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, the ancient respect for transgender identities had not been rooted out, even after centuries of violent punishment under slavery and feudalism. And, despite numerous local and royal edicts banning, masking, and mumming, festival days continued to be marked by women dressing and masking as men, and men as women. Trans expression emerged in culture throughout Europe in holiday celebrations, rituals, carnival days, masquerade parties, theater, literature, and opera. That's why cross-dressing is still part of holiday festivals today in the United States, like Mardi Gras and Halloween. Halloween. Finally, I had found the answer to why I did not face arrest for cross-dressing that one day of the year. I could never have guessed as a young butch in the bars that I was safe from police arrest on October 31st because peasants held onto a transgender tradition throughout centuries of oppression. It seemed incredible to me that centuries of draconian laws and sheer terror could not suppress these trans customs. End quote. We've moved a ways away from discussing Halloween, from the Celtic peasants' persistence in celebrating their holy day, to more overt, more violent rebellions against the patriarchal powers that be. But there is a link between all of these things. The defiance that led farmers to don dresses and battle is the same defiance that inspired Celtic villages to continue in their traditions so doggedly that the church had to give in and sanction Sawin as Hallow's Eve. And it's the same kind of defiance that has led queer communities in the United States to adopt and adapt those ancient Halloween customs into something different but still built around recognizing how frail the boundary between the spiritual and mundane is, and celebrating the sacredness of subverting the status quo. But before we continue with that history, I will close our excerpts from Leslie Feinberg with here comments on the differences and the ties between those ancient rebels and contemporary queer persons. I don't imagine that the peasants and workers who cross-dressed for battle thought about themselves in the same way as modern-day drag queens or transsexuals. I grew up as a factory worker, so I can't compare my consciousness to that of a serf under feudalism, either. But Rebecca was, and I am, part of huge, exploited, laboring classes. This is an important connection between a cross-dressed peasant and me. Transgender has been outlawed by the ruling classes of both our systems, feudal nobility and modern industrialists alike. The Stonewall Rebellion of Greenwich Village, led by black and Latina drag queens, and the insurgency of Rebecca and her daughters in Wales, are both uprisings against oppression led by cross-dressed individuals. End quote. 
having bridged that long expanse of time and space between the ancient Celts and the iteration of Halloween in the United States, let's unpack just how gay communities in America came to make Halloween their own. The holiday made its way to the U.S. naturally with Irish and Scottish immigrants, but took a while to catch on much outside of those immigrant communities. The Your Queer Story podcast describes how Puritans banned Halloween in the American colonies for the first 200 years or so of white settlers' invasion of America. But as Irish immigrants flooded into the country during the potato famine of the mid-1800s, they brought All Hallows' Eve with them. As the podcast hosts explain, the fun and extravagance of the Irish celebrations pushed the holiday into the public eye and drew the attention of their non-Irish neighbors. Over time, instead of focusing on the death and gore that had accompanied the holiday for so long, neighborhoods were encouraged to make it a family event. And by the late 1920s, trick-or-treating switched from hard pranks and vandalism to children dressing up in costumes and gathering candy. In those early days of trick-or-treating and costumes, cross-dressing was a big part of the celebration, just as it had been all those centuries ago during Celtic observances of Samhain. Remember the anecdote from Leslie Feinberg I read earlier, where Z explained how Halloween was the one night of the year that Z and her fellow butches and queens could escape police harassment? Well, it took time for that safety to be won. In the first decade of the 1900s, police were still, well, policing people's attire, even on Halloween. A web article by Joe Wos on the history of Halloween in Pittsburgh in particular includes news articles from 1907, 1912, and 1913 that report on the arrests of large numbers of girls who'd gone masquerading as young men, as well as three young men in feminine costumes along with articles assuring the public that the police will maintain order in the streets on Halloween night. But, just as the church in Ireland, all those centuries before, had found it impossible to stomp out celebrations of Samhain, thus American police eventually caved to pressure to hold off from policing gendered clothing on Halloween. In 1914, Pittsburgh's police department publicly declared that they would not arrest women caught dressed in men's clothing during the Halloween festivities. As Joe Wass's web article compiling these news stories writes, this was a landmark moment that could be quickly overlooked or dismissed. It's easy to regard the cross-dressing activity as just heterosexual men and women dressing up as a lark. However, Consider the importance of these early Halloween parades to transgender and cross-dressing people of that era, for whom these festivities allowed a night to freely express oneself while still remaining safely in the closet. A single evening to be yourself without fear of public humiliation, degradation, and arrest. Those festivities offered plausible deniability in the guise of costumed revelry. Joe Wass continues, There is no way of knowing how many in those parades lived closeted lives. But even if only a few LGBTQ individuals took part, 
They were perhaps the first to march publicly in the streets, expressing their true genders and sexuality under the protective spirit of the holiday. End quote. Moving into later decades of the 1900s, when Leslie Feinberg was living and learning about life as a young butch, journalist David Frum argues that the Halloween craze started in gay culture. It was not until LGBT communities claimed the holiday, Frum says, that it went from being a small thing to a huge event for adults as well as children that it is now. As best as we can tell, he says, the kind of Halloween we know now, with its dress-up for kids and adults, began in San Francisco's Castro neighborhood. In the 1970s, that neighborhood emerged as the heart of a new home-owning, bourgeois-coupled gay community. A local variety store had long sponsored a Halloween street festival for kids. In the 1970s, the street festival transitioned into an adult party of lavish, costumed theatricality. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a troupe of trans and cross-dressing nuns, got their start here. The Castro Halloween party spread to other gay neighborhoods in the 1980s. Greenwich Village, West Hollywood, Key West, Florida... In 1994, University of Florida anthropologist Jerry Kugelmess published a book on the new trend, Masked Culture, describing Halloween as an emerging gay high holiday. And after a while, the straights imitated and gradually forgot where they'd gotten their Halloween parties in the first place. End quote. But Nicholas Rogers, author of Halloween, From Pagan Ritual to Party Night, points out that while Halloween is now enjoyed by all sorts of people, it has been the gay community that most flamboyantly exploited Halloween's potential as a transgressive festival, as one that operates outside or on the margins of orthodox time, space, and hierarchy. Indeed, it is the gay community that has been arguably most responsible for Halloween's adult rejuvenation. End quote. I'll close with another excerpt from Judy Gahn's Another Mother Tongue that encapsulates that queer mastery of Halloween's transgressive elements. It is such a treat for me as a young queer to let Gahn's words paint the scene for me a scene of fun and flirtation, of my people being able to get playful with their gender freely, in public, without fear, for at least one night. Here's the passage. On Halloween 1980, my lover and longtime partner Wendy Caden and I deck ourselves out. She as a determined pirate, I as a rakish, caped dandy in purple and blue, my gold tooth gleaming specially for the occasion, my breasts daringly, for me, displayed. We decide to go to San Francisco and look at the fairies and queens. As we drive through the city on Halloween just at dusk, we know we are close to the gay section when we see an immensely tall, well-built blonde man eating a hamburger on display in full view through the front plate glass window of a busy restaurant. 
He is completely decorated from head to foot as a silver butterfly, large filament wings flowing out behind him three or four feet, and impressive, lovely antennae curling from his head. Not a soul is near him, and he looks as if he has just arrived from another world. A world where gigantic butterflies sit in display windows eating hamburgers as a matter of course. A few minutes later, as we are walking further down the same street, we pass two men completely encased in black leather, at first giving the impression of invulnerability that leather imparts to its wearers. However, something else about them is out of kilter. They are too skinny, and walking too close to each other. Their center of balance isn't really in their shoulders, it's in their hips and hands, and they are talking a mile a minute to each other in gabby voices. The impact is uncanny. These are leather queens. We see several gay male couples outfitted as man and wife wearing slightly exaggerated clothing and postures, with the grim black-suited man dragging by one arm the babyish, passively protesting, pink-fluffed wife across the crowded street, as genuinely heterosexual couples stop short, look embarrassed, or glower threateningly at this open and totally conscious satire of their own prescribed roles. Wendy and I lounge aggressively on a street corner. I am having a great time, making faces at the tourists, flirting with the dykes who go by, winking at the fairies who notice us appreciatively, being rude and belligerent to the people who have come without costumes to gape at the freaks. We watch the continuous parade flitting by. The queens are out in full regalia. And though there are plenty of interesting characters, of devils and spirits, of pan figures and puck figures, satyrs, nurses, mock soldiers and mock police, mock babies and cowboys, the primary theme is enacted by the queens, queens, queens. End quote. And there you have it, my friends. Though it has undergone a great many changes over the centuries, the most ironic to me being how capitalism has sunk its teeth into it when originally it was a day by and for peasants against upper classes, Halloween is saturated with queerness and rooted in Celtic subversion of the status quo. So here's hoping we can bring that boundary-breaking spirit we find at Halloween into the rest of the year. Of course, if you are partaking in any Halloween festivities this year, please do so safely in light of the pandemic. Keep yourselves safe. Encourage one another with stories of sacredness and solidarity. And go break some binaries, being a blessing to the world with your life.